Good morning. I'm so thankful to see so many of your faces uh, after being gone for two weeks with uh, the birth of little Parker Elliott. It is good to see uh, some of your faces actually up in this sanctuary that we have maybe have been downstairs for a few weeks. And so it's good to see you guys that I haven't seen maybe for maybe a month or more. And so it's good to see you all. It's always great to be back with my church family, and uh, especially uh, uh, after such an exciting time for our family. And we are thankful for how so many have reached out to us, uh, encouraged us, prayed for us, blessed us. And so we're thankful for that, uh, uh, for how God has taken care of our family through our church family. And today uh, we're continuing our series in Romans chapter 9. This will actually be uh, kind of the closing of Romans. Of course, there's several chapters uh, left in Romans, but we'll come back uh, in another time uh, as we try to get a good smattering of the entire scriptures as we walk through that. Today, we're going to be uh, closing up with Romans chapter 9, uh, and next week we'll start actually in First Peter as we'll be challenged to stand firm. What a great reminder for us as Christians during this day uh, to stand firm. But today, as we go through Romans 9, you actually might be surprised that we're going through chapter 9. Uh, there's a, this chapter is, uh, is maybe difficult to understand by some, maybe controversial by some standards. And I know a lot of pastors that would say, well, okay, this is a little different. I'm going to skip to Romans chapter 10 because uh, this isn't as controversial or it's not as, uh, not as difficult. Uh, but, but I know we believe that everything between the table of contents and the maps is God's inerrant word. And so all of it is intended for us to know, understand, and believe. And so as we read through Romans 9 today, uh, we're going to be looking at and trying to understand as best as we can from God's word, God's election and our salvation. Now, I'm not going to read, I normally read the whole text here at the beginning, but since it's a longer section, we're going to just read it as it goes along, because I believe that, that as Paul has written it, inspired by, God's work, by God, uh, that there's sort of uh, ideas or arguments that we can walk through and read the segments together. So that's why we might be a little bit different this morning. So let me pray for us, uh, pray for myself as we tackle this chapter together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that in it is life and through it uh, that we can be changed. And God, I'm thankful for the gift of your word, that we know you better, that we can understand your character more. But most importantly, it is the message of salvation. And so, Lord, as we come to it this morning, that we might even come with questions, that we might come with maybe even misunderstandings by your Holy Spirit, that you would correct us by your word, rebuke us if necessary, but ultimately we want our hearts to be changed, that we might worship you greater and more fully. In your Son's precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, maybe you uh, have, have been sharing the gospel with someone and you've been rejected. And you walk away discouraged because you wonder, why did this person not respond to this glorious good news of Jesus Christ? Maybe you have been sharing and you have been praying for someone for years, decades even, and you wonder why... Has this person not been saved? 
Maybe you sit around and think with everything that's going on in the world, you ask the question, why has God, why are people rejecting God? Why are people so against God? Many tears have been shed over this. Many people are discouraged because they might think quickly of a loved one or someone who has not trusted in Christ. And this is where actually Paul begins this chapter. If you actually think through this chapter, many people will jump, those who are in tune with theological discussions will want to jump right into the discussion of the doctrine of election. But let us think through what Paul is starting with is that he says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that myself could be cursed, cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters of my own flesh and blood. What he's saying and what the whole text is asking us or Paul is discussing is uh, here in the church at Rome, there are many Jewish believers, and the question is, why do these people of promise now not, re not receiving Christ, not, they're actually rejecting Christ, and, and Paul's arguing and, or, or discussing through this idea of how come these people of promise have rejected Christ and are not being saved. There's a discussion or idea even more that Paul is thinking, well, has God's promises failed in this? Because if they are to be the people of promise, has God just reneged on his promise? Well, whether you're asking these questions or what Paul is asking or dealing with in this chapter, it is really about the doctrine of election. Now, to help us a little bit, I went to a systematic theology written by John MacArthur and Mayhew just to take a definition that we might be able to somewhat put our minds around. The definition, the degree of election or decree of election is the free and sovereign choice of God made in eternity past to set his love on certain individuals and on the basis of nothing in themselves, but solely because of the good pleasure of his will, to choose them to be saved from sin and damnation and to inherit the blessings of eternal life through the mediatorial work of Christ. That's a really long definition, but it helps us to understand that it is God who, by his own sovereign plan, from before there was time, has chosen to save Thankfully, me and others by the work of Jesus Christ. Now, the doctrine of election is something that is hard to understand. And actually, many of us would probably outright recoil or cringe to even think of such a thing. Uh, we mostly cringe because I believe that's in our sin nature. Uh, because from the very beginning of time, Adam and Eve has rejected and said, no, I want to be like God. I am more like God. There is no way that God has sovereign will or plan or place over my life. And that is ingrained in our nature to reject such a thought. And especially as Western Christians here in America, our patriotism and liberty is sown within us. And to say that someone has something to say over us is something that is rejects, we reject quickly, that we recoil against to say that there is something over us that is choosing something as important as salvation is something that we just like, ugh, that's not right. But what we have to read and what we have to understand 
is that the scriptures speak about this not just here in Romans 9, but from beginning to end. That this is the story of God's sovereign and plan and work to save us. As we think through these important topics that we've read in Romans chapter the Romans already, we see that, yes, it must be God at work in salvation. I mean, think about what we have read, that we were separated from God, and that the only way to come from God is from an act of God, that we are to receive the righteousness of God through the mercy of God, through God the Son who died on the cross, that by the grace and work of God in our hearts, then we can respond that we have been brought near to God. So when many think or talk or try to think through this doctrine of election, instead of the negative or argumentative and maybe even questions that might come to our mind, our hope that the text would help us see that this is not something us to be negative or questioning God about, but worshiping God about. That we would bring our hearts to rise to see this great, wonderful work of God saving us and others by his mercy. And in this passage, we want to see how Paul reveals the doctrine of election and why God's sovereign grace is showing us rightfully his love. And so maybe you've been wrestling with this, or maybe this is the first time you've ever heard of this. My prayer, and I believe what Paul is pointing to us, is that this is a great doctrinal reason for us to worship and praise God for our salvation. In this passage, there are four truths that we want to see about election that helps us to understand God and his love for us. And at the end, I want to show just three quick benefits of this doctrine. So the first thing that we, if you're taking notes at home or downstairs in the fellowship hall or here in the room, the first point is election reveals God's sovereign plan. Well, let's begin reading in verse 6 to verse 13 of Romans chapter 9. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but as from the one who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. The question begins that Paul speaks to is this idea is that if some of Israel or some of the world are not saved, does this mean God's promise to Israel has failed? Well, Paul says, no, no, this is not God's promise failing. And he even reveals later on that there will always be a prominence to a remnant of Israel to be saved. 
But what he uses as an example or a story for us to understand is that it is never about who we are and what we have done, but it is only by the grace work of God that he has saved us and purposefully brought us to faith in him. And he uses this example of Israel because in it, if it was just by where we were born and what we have done, then all of Israel would be saved. But Paul argues, no, it's not by who your father was physically, but who your father is spiritually, where the promise has been passed. And he uses this this whole wonderful example of biblical history to show that it is God's own purpose and plan from the beginning for his sovereign will to save some. And so he uses the the lineage of Abraham. Now, here is, let's begin with Abraham. If you go back to Genesis, you would just see, why did God choose Abraham? The text never tells us. It just says, God called Abram from Ur. There was nothing good about him, nothing special about him. And so God called Abram to begin this wonderful lineage of the Jewish people. And then he goes to the next example. He says, well... If it was just because of who our father is, then uh, what about Isaac and Ishmael? Abraham had several children by several different wives. The first child he had was, from, uh, was Ishmael through, uh, through Hagar. But we remember Paul says here that he was not the child of promise. It was Isaac. So even though Abraham fathered Ishmael in the typical custom of the day. The eldest son would be the son of promise, the one that would go the lineage, and and in this case, the promise of God to bring the person of Christ. Well, God says, no, it's not Ishmael. It's Isaac, the one born of Sarah in her old age. Well, you might then argue, okay, well, it is because there's two different mothers. So obviously there was a, a plan, and then there was a another plan. The real plan was by Sarah and Abraham messed it up. Well, no, no, no. Paul understands that question and prepares for it. He said, well, what about Isaac and Rebekah? Isaac and Rebekah, same mother, same father, had twins, and remember had twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, and remember, Jacob was holding on to the heel, and he was the second born, and, and so the, the promise or so would have been to Esau, but again, Paul says, it's not by how we were born, by what we have done, instead it is by my sovereign choice before eternity passed, he says, the older will serve the younger. I mean, we could continue on in Abraham's line. Romans, uh, Paul does not speak to the next line, but you could, you could talk about um, Jacob and his family, and we know that uh, from that he had four different uh, wives with 12 different children, and that the first one, Reuben, is not the person of promise. It's actually the fourth child, Judah, who is the line of tribe of Judah, who is the person of promise. But what do we read about the most in Genesis? Joseph. God was working his sovereign plan through Joseph for a time. You see, the point is that Paul is trying to make is that in verse 11 is the key. That for 
though her sons had not been born, yet had done anything bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. You see, it is God's sovereign choosing and his plan for history to work, to bring people to salvation, to bring Christ as the king, and to ultimately to bring Christ to you so that you might be saved. Paul is using this masterful presentation of biblical theology showing that the whole Bible speaks to this. But this is not just Paul's doctrine. Jesus speaks to it in John chapter 6, verse 44, when he says, no one can come to me Listen, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that day. And not just Jesus, but Peter. First Peter 1, Peter, an apostle to Jesus Christ, to the chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedient and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. This is an idea and understanding that God's sovereign work is helping us to see that he is saving each person under his sovereign and perfect plan. Now you may cringe at thinking through this a little bit, but I know that you behave as if it's true. How do I know that? It's because you pray for other people to be saved. If you understand, and what we understand prayer to be, is to acknowledge that we are calling on God to act, that we are to humble ourselves and we want God to move, then what we are doing and when we're praying, God save someone, we are admitting that it is God's plan and his purpose to save we must understand in a wonderful way that God's sovereignty is over all things. That even when we are lost in sin, before time, he saw it and chose us because of his loving work in us. Secondly, election displays the mercy of God. Picking up in verse 14 to verse 18, it says, What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I show compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scriptures tell Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then... He has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So the next question that you might be logically thinking or asking if you think through this is, is this not fair? Is God picking favorites? Is this wrong? Is this injustice? Well, Paul says, absolutely not. He uses a quote where God speaks and says that God uses his own mercy, his own mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And uses the example of Pharaoh where we read in all of Exodus that Pharaoh hardens his own heart and then God hardens his heart even more. That God is sovereignly working to show the world his glory and to save his people out of slavery. The fact is, is Paul demonstrates that we need God 
to be saved. In the beginning of Romans, we read for chapter 1, 2, and 3, <clears throat> excuse me, that we are sinners, that none of us are righteous, that we can't even come to know God or come clean with God because of our sin against God. And therefore, as guilty and sinful as we are in God's sight, the reality is none of us deserve to be saved. And the fact that God in his mercy saves some should not bring us to despair and accuse God of injustice, but instead we should look to God in praise. The fact that he has overlooked our past and saved us is amazing. So what is to shock is not that God has not extended his compassion to everyone, but that he extends in compassion to anyone at all. The fact that we must set our sides ourselves instead of accusing God of injustice, we should consider where we are. In spite that we deserve judgment, we receive this beautiful mercy of God that is sweet and worthy of our praise. A pastor used a great example of this that sometimes we take for granted or we take credit for our own salvation. And he uses this example of maybe you hear of five friends who are decided that they're going to rob a bank and you plead with them because you know it's not going to end well and you, uh, you do everything you can to stand in their way to stop them and, and argue with them that this is not the way to go and, and they go but yet you tackle one of your friends and hold them and the rest of them go off and rob this bank there's a, a fight that ensues uh, some of them die many of them go to prison but this one whom you have tackled is free. Now that person could not say, well, look a good person I am. <laughs> I didn't go rob the bank. I, I, I was good, so I'm free. No, what was, the what was at work there? You tackled them. You stopped them from committing the sin. Well, in the same way, God's wonderful work is that he has interjected his mercy into our lives that we do not take the credit for our salvation yet but we look to God and his mercy in Christ Romans 8 29 through 30 reminds us of this wonderful gift for those he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among brothers and sisters and to those he predestined he also called and those he called he also justified and to those he justified he also glorified what a gift of mercy we have received in God which leads us to number three election gives us a view of God's glory. I'm going to just read verse 19 through 24, uh, but the whole idea through verse 29 is going to be summarized here. When they say, verse 19, you will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed to say to the one who formed it? Uh, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter have no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery to honor the other one or dishonor? 
What is God wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known? Endured with such patience, objects of wrath prepared for destruction. And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? On us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Here this question then comes that maybe you might ask. If God chooses and elects, then can he continue to find fault? Can he really hold our sin against us if he's not willing to save us from our sin and his mercy? Why is he the one choosing? And then Paul stops the argument. I don't know about you, when you were young and you started to argue with your parents, I mean, I know there's looking in this room and I know downstairs and those at home that none of you could have ever argued with your parents. You never had a disagreement. You never had a harsh word. And, and there was never a point where you thought, maybe if I argue long and hard enough, I might change mom and dad's mind. Well, I have to admit that I've done that. And that there was a time that at one point I knew there was something that was said that the discussion, and especially me, needed to stop talking. Uh, that was from one parent or another, or maybe in our household even now still, I'll have to ask Franklin what that is, is that's enough. When that phrase, when statement was applied, then we knew that it was time to be quiet or it was going to be punished. Or my dad would use uh, a phrase that was... Uh, was popular back in the 80s by a comedian. He would, he would say, uh, kind of jokingly, but he would say, boy, I brought you into this world and I can take you out and I can make another one just like you. And then I knew that that was when the discussion was over. But Paul says, how can you dare to ask and question God for who God is? Who are you, a creature, to talk back to the Creator? Paul uses this wonderful picture of the potter and the clay. He is asking this simple question. Can the clay ask the potter, Hey, why did you make me a saucer bowl and not a good pottery dish to serve at dinner time? Is it the, is it the pottery or the clay's point to, to speak or ask question to the Creator? Is it that we get to ask and say, God, why have you done this this way? Well, in verse 22 through 24, Paul helps us to see what if God wanted to display his wrath and power, that he endured much patience of objects of wrath, and what is it that he has made known his glory so that, that prepared beforehand that the ones called not only also from the Jews, but also the Gentiles. How can we question a God who in his glory and his sovereign grace is saving both Jews and Gentiles, saving some and those of us who are in our sin that God is working it all. God is using all of this to display. Look at me, the glorious good God who has worked all of history and has planned for eternity so that people who have rejected me, rebelled against me, went against me, that in my mercy I have loved, I have sacrificed my son, and in this my glory is revealed. How can we question that? 
Instead, should we not sit back and praise God? He gives us the several following scriptures from the Old Testament, from Hosea and Isaiah and others, to show that it is God working all these things for his glory. That we were still sinners. That Christ died for us. That God, who is rich in mercy, raised us to life. Brothers and sisters, let us remember and not forget the glorious miracle that is our salvation. You know, helping Sarah, I, when the alarm goes off at feeding time, I, I get up and I change the diaper, get Parker ready, hand him off. Uh, we're doing a lot of time in our bedroom making sure that Sarah's comfortable and that, that Parker's being fed and everything is going well. And I'll have to admit, over the last couple of weeks, I've seen a lot of HGTV. It's just but what's on. I've seen a lot of renovations. I've seen a lot of fixing up. And, and I've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, old bones. And I've seen a lot of or good bones. And I've, I've seen a lot of... Um, Love it and list it. And I've seen a lot of shows about people renovating and changing. And they come in and they take down walls and they slap up some paint and they put in some new furniture and everything seems good. But you know what? I've been watching for three weeks and I have yet to see one of those designers start something and start it from scratch and take it all down and build it back up. Because if we are reminded of what, where we are in our salvation, that, that is the miracle that God does in our life. It is not that he comes in our life and slaps on a little bit of new pain and makes us a little bit better in this area or, or that area or he makes us a little, a little cleaner looking or, or better, uh, nicer. He takes us all the way down and builds us all the way back up. The Bible tells us that we are new creatures, that we were dead in our trespasses, and now we are alive again, that we are dead in Romans chapter, chapter 6. We have been buried in the likeness of his death, and we are now raised to walk in newness of life. You see, this is the miracle that we should set back in glory in this new renovation, yet new creation that God has done in our life. That we remember this wonderful doctrine of election to help us see that it is truly a mighty God who saves, a mighty God who can only save, a mighty God who is the King of kings, a mighty God who is the only one that can redeem us from our sin. Maybe we shouldn't recoil at this, but instead, we should see and be raised to glory and praise his name. Instead of looking at it from our me-centered, meager, man-centered mind, and maybe we should sit back and look at the awe-inspiring glory of God. Because number four, election brings us back to Jesus. Verse 30 through 33, he says, What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness. 
namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but it was by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over, and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. This is where Paul brings his sole argument to the runway. Because of God's wonderful election and moving in our hearts, that we can obtain the glory and good news of God and salvation, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus the Son. Now, does this fully help us to understand God's responsibility? Partly. Does it help us to see our responsibility? Partly. Yes, there is a, there is a holy uneasiness in this doctrine that we must also say, I'm glad you're God and I'm not. But it helps us to see that God's saving purposes is not by what we do or how we work or what we, how we behave, but what we do with Jesus. The argument is here in verse 30 through 33, if God is, if God is doing the saving, then how, come it be that, how could it be that the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, yet received righteousness through faith? Or that how did the Jews try to gain righteousness by their works, yet they have not received righteousness because they haven't in faith received Jesus? That's the argument. But what is the single factor that we know? That God foreknew, foreknew predestines, and calls us that we might have faith in his son. And he uses a quote from the Old Testament. That look, I'm putting a stone in Zion that will stumble over. A rock to trip over. And the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. How do we know? Just quickly, how do we know what this is? There's an there's a event in, in the disciples' life where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, this is the rock I will build my church. This rock, this belief, this understanding that I am the son of God, that I am the savior of the world. This is how people must be saved. And the Jews stumbled over it. They tripped over it because they thought, well, by my lineage, by my tradition, by where I was born, by me following these laws, I can be saved. And God says, oh, no. It's only from the beginning that faith saves. Even Abraham was saved by faith. Moses was saved by faith. David was saved by faith. Everyone is a matter of faith. And what I'm saying now is you have faith in my son. And the same is answered to us. That those whom God has chosen must put their faith in Jesus Christ the son. And that is the call to you. That is the call to me. In John chapter 1, even John writes, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, he gave them the right to be the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of natural descent, but of the will of the flesh, or the will of the flesh, or the will of God, or will of man, 
excuse me, but of God. The one born of God trusts in Christ. So this wonderful understanding of God moving an eternity past to save those of his free and good pleasure, we have been saved. So why does this give us reasons to rejoice? Paul masterfully places this discussion in Romans, and it's a swing section of where he argues how does one get saved by faith, and the later sections that we'll come back to at another time, how do we now live in that faith? This three-chapter understanding of election and God's work and man's responsibility gives us a reason to rejoice. Why should we rejoice? Why should we, even with all the questions, you might even leave here today, why would we rejoice? Because, number one, election gives me confidence that I'm loved. You see, if my, if I, if my salvation is based on who I am, what I have done, where I've gone, who I've lived with, who I've lived with, who's my family, if it's by my merit, I know I'm a failure. (laughs) And every accusation that someone gives against me, every time I fail, every time I compare myself to someone else, gives me a chance to think, maybe God doesn't love me. But brothers and sisters, if we understand that God has chosen us from the foundation of the world, we can in every moment of every day of our lives know that we are loved by God. And this is the climax of Romans chapter 8. No, in all these things, in verse 37, he says, and know all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death or life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, no height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> when we are saved, We are always loved. There is never a time that we are not loved by God because he has chosen us. Election number two gives me confidence that I can never be lost again. In the same way, if salvation is dependent on me, then it would actually be up to me to maintain my salvation. But if I know that my salvation is the work and the miracle and the grace of God choosing me, then I know that I can't be lost again. Isn't that what Satan wants us to believe? That, that, hey, you've messed up so much that God doesn't love you, or that person is so far from God that that God doesn't love them? Well, friends, if we are chosen by God, then there is never a time that we can get out of relationship with Him because of His redeeming work of the Spirit in our life. We are born again. We are His children. Or as Jesus says in John chapter 10, I did tell you, and you don't believe Jesus answered them, Um, that the works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. The scripture I wanted to use there, that's the wrong one that I had written down, is that this, that Jesus says that my sheep know my voice and those chosen by my Father will never 
be taken out of my hand. Think of that. That when God works in me and saves me, that God himself is holding on to me. And I can't wander away. We sang today, Lord, bind my heart like a fetter. My heart is prone to wander. Please, God, it is by you and you alone that I stay saved because of what you have done in me. And thirdly and finally, election gives me confidence in evangelism. Now you might say, and some argue wrongly, that because of this we don't need to evangelize or there's no need to evangelize because if God is doing the work, then we don't need to evangelize. Well, no, that's farthest from the reading of the scriptures possible. Because we know, here's the the good news, if we know God is saving, then it gives us even more reason to go evangelize. Because it's like knowing that we're going to win before we even go. Because God is doing work ahead of time. It also, in the argument, we've read Romans 10 before, where in Romans 10, God has sovereignly said the way that the gospel is shared is through how beautiful is the feet that share the good news in Romans chapter 10, that those who go, how can they not hear if a preacher is not sent? God has sovereignly chosen for his saved people to go share the good news that others will hear, that he will work in their lives, that they will be saved. And so we must know that as we are sharing, God is saving. And this gives me confidence. And as I was listening this week, uh, a couple different videos and different things, David Platt was talking about how we know David Platt, who was IMB president and has staked both of his churches in world evangelism and sending people and sending people out into the world. He said that his church had partnered, there was a people group in East Asia who was militantly against Christianity. That they were actually proud of killing Christians coming to share the good news because they did not want the good news to come to them. But he said he and his church have committed to win someone of that people group to the Lord. He said that no, it's going to cost time, it's going to cost money, It might even cost lives, but the reason that I will continue is because God will, by his word, elect and save someone from that people group. We know that God has promised that from every tribe, tongue, and nation, he will save someone. As we read in Revelation 5, 9, And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you were purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And therefore, if we know this, how much more we should give our lives to go and share the gospel. Because God is saving lives. So, Can we worship God that he has chosen us freely before time to be his? Yes. Can we praise God for the mercy we have in Christ? Yes. And can you today trust and call out and believe in God to be saved? Yes. Because God has done 
and is doing a work in his gospel. May we understand this glorious gift of God saving us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this wonderful good news that we can rest in, that the good news is that we, through Jesus, are being saved and that it is by your sovereign and good work that we are being saved. That, God, we know that this wonderful gift, that even though we were far from you, we can be brought near because of your good work in us. And, God, I pray today that if there's someone, either online or here in the building, in the fellowship hall, the sanctuary, that, Lord, that they would trust in the name of God and be saved. God, I pray that we would see this not as a hindering truth, but a living, glorious, wonderful truth. And we pray, God, that it would bring our hearts to worship and send us out to share. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.